This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Virginia discussing the unfortunate deaths of two college students. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Mother of Presidents. All crime scenes are different, and evidence will vary, but there is a general outline about what should happen at the scene of the crime. According to CrimeScenInvestigator.net, the following steps will help ensure that evidence isn't inadvertently damaged or destroyed. Photograph and document the scene. This step is always crucial. Once the photos are taken, the investigators should now make a detailed examination of the victim. The best idea is to begin at the head and work the way down to the feet, look for cuts, bruises, stab wounds, or bullet holes. Then, collecting trace materials is very important, especially from probable points of entry. Next, collect low-level DNA evidence by swabbing areas of likely contact. Then collect other items that may contain biological evidence. The crime scene, examination, and subsequent search should be done in a careful and methodical manner. While all of these steps seem fairly standard, there are still so many cases out there where one or more of these steps is skipped. When this happens, it can result in serious errors that affect the outcome of the case, and this is especially true in the investigation of suicide. Sometimes, if a case is reported as a suicide, the officer or investigator that responds to the scene may automatically treat it as a suicide without looking at other factors. There are many cases of homicides that have been staged to look like a suicide. According to Practical Homicide Investigation, all death inquiries should be conducted as a homicide investigation until the facts prove differently. In 1991, Tommy Burkett was 21 and a junior at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. He was a psychology major and was just three semesters away from graduating. His family lived close by. His parents lived just around 20 miles or so from the campus. So Arlington, Virginia is northern Virginia and is just across the river from D.C. Mm-hmm. So during his Thanksgiving break, he went to his parents' home in Fairfax County for the weekend. He seemed to be in great spirits, and on November 30th, he went out to visit some of his friends in Centerville. So that's just seven miles away from where his parents lived. He called them around 2 a.m. to let them know he was going to stay the night, but he would be back the next day by noon because they all planned on attending a poetry reading together. So... Noon the next day rolls around. Tommy still is not home. They wait for him and think, okay, well, maybe he's sleeping off a hangover or something. So his parents go to the poetry reading without him at 3 p.m. Tommy's parents, Tom and Beth, got home that evening a little after 6 p.m. And Tommy's car was back in the driveway. So they went inside expecting to see him there. But they walked into a living nightmare. When they walked into Tommy's bedroom, they found him sitting upright on the sofa with a gunshot wound to the head, 
and a 357 Magnum in his hand. Good Lord. Yeah, he was shot once in the mouth. So on the surface, it appeared like a suicide. So open and shut case, right? Yeah. Well, not for his parents. So right when they saw him, his mother Beth ran up and touched him and he was ice cold. His father Tom picked up the revolver just in the heat of the moment, you know, picked it up and was surprised to find that its cylinder was unlatched. So I don't know much about guns, but I was reading that in this condition, the gun couldn't have been fired. Yeah, I was going to say. So a little odd. So Tommy's ankles were crossed and towels were surrounding his body and it looked like they were used to help prop him up in a sitting position. Kind of weird if he was planning his own suicide, that he would put towels around him to, I don't know. So police and fire rescue arrive on the scene shortly after 6.20 p.m. and left before the detective arrived. Beth, his mother, said that when a uniformed officer entered the house, he seemed like he was in a hurry. He went in and quickly left again for no reason. She said she thought this was strange because her, you know, her son was dead. Then he came back in, went up to Tommy's room to look around, and came back with a note that he said he found in Tommy's pocket. Written on an old bank deposit slip were the words, I want to be cremated. So that's all the note said, and Beth said this was not her son's handwriting. Kind of a strange suicide note to say, just say, I just want to be cremated, period. Even though there was just one gunshot to the head, Tommy's overall body was in an odd state. He had a broken jaw, a battered ear, abrasions, bruises, and torn clothing. So it kind of looked like he was in some kind of altercation. These are not the type of marks one would give themselves, if that makes sense. It looks like a fight. So his glasses, wallet, and driver's license were missing. And the way the entire crime scene was handled was unusual. Police did not tape off the area. The bullet lodged into the wall behind Tommy was not analyzed. And the area of the wall where the bullet hit wasn't taken in for ballistics, which I guess is typical. They cut off the portion of the wall, take that in and examine it. They did not search his car. They did not dust at all for fingerprints. They didn't even check with neighbors to see if they saw or heard anything. So allegedly, the officer at the scene told Tom, his father, clean up the mess, which is terrible to tell a parent that just lost a child. So this entire crime scene was rushed, not handled well at all. They saw a young man holding a gun with a shot to the head, assumed suicide, and pretty much that was that. Local witnesses and neighbors said that at the time, they saw one ambulance stop by a curb on an adjacent street, and they saw paramedics leaving the vehicle to pick something up from the ravine. So then the ambulance drove off slowly and without using its siren, and later investigations would reveal that footprints leading from the Burkett's back door down to that ravine but police didn't take casts of this or investigate them in any way. So the second ambulance was the one that directly went to the house and pronounced Tommy dead. They left the body at the scene. That's odd. Yeah, that's highly irregular. 
at least from based on what I read, mm-hmm. that's odd that they would go there and leave, not with the body. Mm-hmm. And they also did not test his hands for gunpowder residue or anything like that. So the first EMT on the scene said Tommy had been dead for several hours. And his mother, Beth, believed this because she said, you know, she touched him. He was very cold and the blood on his head had already been drying up. Later, though, the police officer said that his death happened just a few minutes before the family got home that evening. An autopsy was performed, but the first person didn't even list the cuts, bruises, or broken jaw on Tommy's body. So because of this, his parents ended up exhuming his body to get a second autopsy by someone else who did list all the things wrong. So this is so strange to me because I've read multiple autopsy reports and they're almost over the top with details. So for one to just be so vague and not list any other cuts or bruises on the body, that's strange in itself. Several people who claim to have information went to police and they claim that the police told them that they didn't want to hear about it anymore and that the case was closed. Tommy's parents, on the other hand, wanted to hear what these people had to say. According to various witnesses, on the afternoon of Tommy's death, a large dark sedan was spotted parked nearby with a white man in the driver's seat. It sat there for approximately 20 minutes and then drove off. However, it was spotted again parked in front of the Burgett's home. At this point, people did not see anyone inside the vehicle. So, Witnesses also claim they saw Tommy's car being driven up to their house, but that Tommy was not the guy driving it. Someone drove it there, got out, and then left. No one knew who this man was. Some witnesses also claim that they saw someone chasing Tommy. Tom and Beth Burkett were convinced at this point that foul play was involved. To them, there were too many strange circumstances surrounding Tommy's death. Beth, Tommy's mother, said this. Several neighbors reported seeing Tommy's car being chased by a larger, darker car. One neighbor saw the cars coming and he thought, this is serious. It's life or death. Another neighbor reported that one of the cars involved in the chase at one point drove through someone's yard. Tommy's car was apparently run off the road and he was assaulted. He got away from his attackers and made it back to their house. So, two days after Tommy's death, his parents went to his college dorm room to collect his things, and that's where they finally found his driver's license. Apparently, another student found the license and then turned it into the school. Tom and Beth also found small reddish marks by the stairwell in their home. They informed the authorities, but they did not investigate this, so they hired their own blood stain expert named Paul Kish. He confirmed that the spots were blood, but that they weren't consistent with the crime scene. So, he said that in his professional opinion, another violent altercation took place where the blood was shed. There was a fight, maybe. Something happened prior to the shot in the head. Yeah. So, Beth called the local dispatcher to see if there was a record of Tommy calling 911 for help the day he died. A Fairfax County police officer and other personnel told Beth, that their computers showed that Tommy had called 911 twice on December 1st, the day of his death. And another person had also called, giving the Burkett address and asking for assistance. So the department has stated on tape and in writing that these 911 tapes were erased. Yeah. 
very bizarre. So Tom and Beth tried to figure out a timeline that led up to Tommy's death. Almost three weeks prior, Tommy called his mom and told her that someone broke into his mailbox and stole his paycheck. Only a few days later, he was assaulted by another student on campus. So remember, someone turned his ID into the school. This was the same guy that beat Tommy up. So he had been having issues with other students and was being harassed and assaulted. One of these students was the son of a police officer, and another was the grandson of one of the university's trustees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the police did not disclose too much to Tom and Beth about the harassment going on. It was kind of brushed under the rug by the university. So they also found out that Tommy had called 911 two times prior to the day of his death in August and October. But then the dispatcher changed her story and said he never called. So odd to say, yeah, he called, also he didn't call. Or And at one point she said, I'm not sure why we have his name in our system, but he'd never called us. Okay, well, why would his name be in our system? So I'm very sorry to report this is still an unsolved mystery today. But his parents had their (laughs) theories, so they believed that their son could have been a DEA informant investigating drug dealing going on at the school, and that maybe he was taken out by student perpetrators or higher-ups, or maybe he just stumbled across something he wasn't supposed to see. Regardless, they believe that he was murdered and that law enforcement helped cover the tracks. Sounds like it. So, of course, the DEA did deny any involvement with Tommy Burkett, but Tommy's parents continued to search for the truth until their last days. So, Beth died in 2003, and Tom died in 2006. They both maintained a website with their personal notes on the case and information, so I was able to find and read through that for some of my research. I know that a parent does not want to believe that their child could die by suicide, but they did have many reasons to think foul play was involved. Especially with all of the witnesses and informants constantly going to them. And according to Beth, an informant told her that Tommy was beaten with a baseball bat. I mean, could you imagine someone coming up to you, oh, this happened to your son, this happened to your son? No. You couldn't think it was a suicide. No. The bat in Tommy's room had the gripping tape stripped off the bat. They also noticed that their phone books were missing after Tommy's death. So they believed that these were used to minimize bruising, like that someone beat him with these. A phone book? Yeah. That, That was just what they thought, and to absorb blood spatters. Tom, the father, called Tommy's bank to cancel his banking card, and that's when he found out that Tommy had just used it the night before his death, around midnight on December 1st. Tom asked for the photos from the ATM's camera, but as soon as the police got wind of this, they subpoenaed the bank for the security tapes and kept it from Tom and Beth for seven months. And why every... What what's the purpose of that? There's no reason to do that. I mean, it it's just infuriating. Well, when they were finally, after seven months, able to review the security tape, it was revealed that three white men 
were walking behind Tommy, heading toward Tommy's car while he was looking in their direction. The footage was, of course, not good. They couldn't tell who these guys were. So after Tommy's death, they kept his room totally untouched. They didn't even vacuum it. They wanted to preserve the scene of a crime that the police say didn't happen. Police in Fairfax County, Virginia, still consider his death a suicide. So I read multiple articles that Beth wrote from the Chantilly Times in 2002. This case is also in Season 7 of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack and in Season 2 with Dennis Farina. Um, You can also watch this on YouTube or Amazon Prime. I read articles by Washington Post, Unsolved.com, Mysterious Universe, and Unsolved Mysteries. Then I went on to check out some Reddit threads, you know, just to kind of see Mm -hmm. what people were saying about it. And the opinions were kind of split. Some believe he did die by suicide and that the parents just could not accept that. But then others truly believe this was a murder and a police cover-up of some sort. Others think it was a murder. The police didn't necessarily cover it up, but they were negligent of how they handled things. So that is my conspiracy unsolved mystery of a story today. That's... Mm -mm. It seems like everybody was conspiring and keeping things. Yeah, I honestly don't know what I think about it. I tried to find what he was like in his social life. I don't think he had a girlfriend or anything. So I couldn't really find out if friends said he had been depressed or anything. No quotes from friends or anything like that. His parents said, of course, that he was happy they don't think he died by suicide but of course a parent wants to say that you know people have different lives from the lives of being under their parents roof it's not the same thing so maybe they didn't want to see something or it's just hard to say but there were so many weird things I mean if you had all your neighbors coming up to you I saw other cars chasing your son's Mustang down in the neighborhood I think he was beaten with a baseball bat I mean you couldn't just disregard that. I don't know. It's just, it sucks. And they're mm-hmm. both, both parents have passed away since then. So there's really no one left to fight for this case. It's kind of sad. It's terrible. Yeah. This is a heavy case. <laughs> I know. Jeez. I never heard of it until I started looking, looking through Virginia history. So what's your case about today? So I'm covering Yardley Love. Mm, so Yardley she, Love. Yes, I love her name. So she was 22 years old and a senior at UVA, and she was three weeks away from her graduation. No. Yeah. Mm. But let's back up. So, Yardley Reynolds Love was born July 17th, 1987 in Maryland to Sharon and John. She had a big sister, Lexi, and she was extremely athletic. She played varsity field hockey and lacrosse and attended a Notre Dame prep school. Hmm. So, she had some munties. Yeah. Yeah. At 10 years old, she decided that she wanted to play lacrosse at the University of Virginia because that's where her dad went before he left to go into the military. 
her senior year, she was recruited to play for them, and she majored in government, and that's when she met George Hughley, and the couple was kind of on and off again. Mm -hmm. So, George was born September 17th of 87, and he was also very athletic. He played football and lacrosse in high school and was named All-American Lacrosse Player. So, Yardley's sophomore year of high school, her dad actually passed away from cancer, which was super hard on her. I mean, it's tough. You've lost your dad. I've lost my dad. We know that sucks, and that's not really a club that anyone wants to be a part of. But she kept a positive attitude both on and off the field. So, you know, she goes off to college. She's playing lacrosse. She meets George. He also plays lacrosse. The teams would, you know, it's kind of like a club. Like the lacrosse players would intermingle, hang out on and off right. the field, party together. Yeah, they dated each other. It was just kind of like their little fraternity sorority. Mm-hmm. So George's parents actually divorced, and it was very acrimonious, to say the least. They fought a lot. It was not good growing up. So anyways, um, he also attended private school like her. People would say that he was very committed to his religion. What religion? I mean, she went Don't to... say Scientology. She went, no. Um, his family was religious. Her family was religious. Private Catholic schools, okay. very uh-huh. waspy. So some things would come up after her death, after Yardley's death, things that he had done, starting uh, with stealing the keys to his coach's car out of his office in high school, and he drove it around the lacrosse field and called his teacher from the car and told him what he was doing. He's kind of a prankster. Maybe he thought these things were funny. When he was a freshman, he told his coach, his football coach, that he would make a big play in exchange for a kiss from his fiance. What? Yes. So then he, major interception on the field, kisses the fiance, and then asks for her phone number in front of his coach. His coach's fiance. Yes. What? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And he was known for his drinking all the way back in high school. So it kind of sounds like, I mean, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but it kind of sounds like he's just a rich, entitled, yeah, punk-ass <laughs> high school boy. Tell me we all you know. know. We all yeah. went to high school with that guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he majored in anthropology at UVA, and that's obviously when he met Yardley. And we all kind of know lacrosse is a sport for extremely rich kids from the same background. We all know that. Or am I the only one that knew that? I mean, we didn't have lacrosse at our school. Well, we didn't have it at our school either. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of a private school. Yeah, it's definitely kind of like... Like water polo. Yeah, I don't (laughs) know. Yeah, you're not playing... Those sports that just, you know, you're not doing that in no. East M in Little Rock. Exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. So he was like 6'2 and like 209 and she was like 5 foot nothing and like 100 pounds. So that's just the differences in mm-hmm. their sizes. So in 2007, he was charged with underage drinking in Florida at his family home, his $2 million family vacation home. 
In November of 2008, he was found stumbling drunk into traffic at a, from a frat house in Lexington. A female police officer told him that he needed to find a ride home or go to jail. And he got angry and started screaming racial slurs and sexual slurs, <sighs> threatening her. And she ends up tasing him no. because he was so yes. aggressive. Tase, 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 tase. So he goes to court, acts super sincere and apologetic. He had a plea bargain and he was fined a hundred dollars. What? 60 day suspended sentence, six months probation and community service, and had to attend a substance abuse class for 20 hours. 20 hours. That was it. Wow. Okay. So he was supposed to tell his college that all this had happened, but he did not. Mm. Or he would have been expelled and lost. He would have made a play across. But his dad, like, partied with him, too. So a month after all this happens, he and his dad are in Palm Beach at their beach house. They take the boat out. George wants to go in. Dad doesn't. So he jumps overboard and starts swimming to shore. So dad has to call the Coast Guard and the police. It turns into a whole domestic thing. Yeah, it's... Hmm. It's insane. I'm just trying to paint you a picture of yeah. what we're dealing with. Yeah, that's not. I'm not trying to dog him out. Yeah, I know. I'm just sense. trying to give you some examples because what I'm going to tell you, so it, it doesn't come out of left field. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He just got a slap on the wrist for this. So the UVA lacrosse team out of, so eight out of 41 on the team in 2010 were charged with alcohol-related offenses. Eight boys out of 41 were charged with alcohol-related offenses. Because everybody kind of looks the other way because they are rich, entitled college kids. That's 100% true. It really is. So, back to Yardley. So he was supposed to graduate in two weeks. He already had a job lined up in D.C. at a real estate firm. But his outbursts were getting out of control. So he and Yardley were kind of on and off again because she was getting sick of it. On May 2nd, 2010, George was out celebrating and drinking with his dad by 10 a.m. at the country club. Later, the lacrosse team joined them. They were celebrating, like, a tournament they had won. And when they all got there, they were already, like, George was hammered at 10 a.m. with his dad. At 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. with his father? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Kind of sounds like his dad was, like, mm-hmm. the fun, good-time yeah. dad and wanted to drink and be his kid's buddy. So they were at the country club drinking and carrying on. Other lacrosse players come with their dads. And they're like, yeah, everybody's hammered. George was so drunk that they had to cut dinner short that night. Like they had to, they all played golf and then they were all supposed to go to a dinner and he was so belligerent and embarrassing to everyone that they were like, let's just, we're done. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we're done. So he gets back to his apartment about 1030, his roommate said, and started drinking again. So they leave and go to the store around 1130. They get back about 20 minutes later and he was gone. But he was back by like 12.15 and he looked off, they said. Hmm. Like something was 
going on and okay. he wasn't talking to him. So this was a Sunday. So Yardley and her roommate also went out that night with other lacrosse players. They were in walking distance of like a hamburger place. They Sunday fun dated up. They got home around 10. Yardley's roommate said she wanted to go back out. So she left and Yardley took a shower and went to bed. Hmm. She left the front door unlocked, but she locked her bedroom door. That way her roommate could get back in. So roommate and boyfriend come back about 2 a.m. And they spot a hole in the bedroom door. They looked in on her and she was on her stomach in the bed and the covers were pulled up. But her hair was kind of like in her face. So her roommate walked over just to kind of move her hair and check on her. And they see blood. So her roommate and boyfriend call 911 and start CPR on her. She was just in her underwear. First responders get there. Her eye is swollen shut. She's got cut and bruises on her face. And she was pronounced dead at the scene. So the roommate and the boyfriend go down to the station for questioning and she tells them like her ex-boyfriend was abusive in the past. He would send her threatening text messages, emails, so on and so forth. And he was very violent towards her in the past. And she told him about a time in February that Yardley was at his apartment in his bedroom and he wrapped his arms around her neck and tried to choke her. Oh, no. So she runs back to her apartment hysterical to her friend. Now, their apartments live in the same apartment complex Mm -hmm. and their apartments were like within walking distance. So it must be like a bunch of college kids live in this area. So the cops go to George's apartment to talk to him and end up taking him down to the station for an interview where he waves his Miranda rights and downplays it. Said they had broken up, and he was pissed that she wouldn't speak to him. And so after his roommates left, and he obviously was drunk, he decided to walk over and be like, you know, what the fuck? Why why are we not talking? So her door is shut and locked, so he kicks her door in. And he says that he shook her and hit her head against the door. They rolled around the floor and were wrestling. And he saw blood coming out of her nose. So he tosses her on the bed and leaves. He takes her laptop and then leaves. He said he took her laptop so she would have a reason to talk to him. Oh, okay. I was about to say, like, ask for her. Okay. He had taken her phone in the past. And so she'd have to go there and, like, give me my phone. Like, what are you doing? So Just a control issue. Oh, for sure. Very domestic. Mm-mm. He says he threw her laptop in the dumpster and told the cops where they could find it. <sighs> yeah. So, on May 3rd, he was charged with first-degree murder. On January of 2011, he was charged with robbery, grand larceny, and burglary. Neighbors would go on to say that around 11.50, they heard banging and arguing that sounded like the slamming of a trunk, but they weren't mm-hmm. alert enough to call the police. People call the police. So two hours later, she was found by her roommate. They searched his place and found his pants, a UVA shirt he was wearing with blood on it, his keys and passport that were all in his pants pocket. Hmm. Sound like he was ready to run. Well, yeah. Interesting. The passport. Why would you have? I don't even know where my passport is. Yeah, mine's in a specific place. It's mm-hmm. not just in my in your purse. pocket. Yeah. yeah, it's no. So they interviewed other players, and one said that 
George had found out another lacrosse player had walked Yardley home one night and that George broke into this guy's apartment or his oh. dorm room and punched him while he, he was sleeping. Home. He walked her yeah. home. Yeah, not this night, and in another occasion. So they were just kind of like, yeah, he's kind of a loose cannon. So the coach does nothing about this. Knows about it, does nothing. Doesn't suspend him, doesn't kick him off the team. Nothing was ever done. Another guy said that once they were at a party um, to celebrate both teams winning a tournament, and George started to choke Yardley in front of everyone, and it was actually the visiting team from... UNC, University of North Carolina, that other lacrosse players that pulled him off of her. No one from her team (gasps) or his team did a thing. They just stood there and watched him choking her. And these Uh other dudes from this lacrosse team from North Carolina were like, get the fuck off of her. I love you, North Carolina. Thank you, North Carolina. Go Tar Heels or whatever they say. I should know that. Like I said, the lacrosse culture is like fraternity and sorority from everything I've read. Mm-hmm. I don't know for a fact. So, anyways, um, they did find threatening emails and text messages on his phone and on his laptop. At one point, he did send her a message apologizing for his behavior, and she took him back. And they break up and go back. Yeah. And, you know, it was that whole thing. Um, one time they did fight and she hit him with her purse. This was on around April the 30th. He sent her a message saying, that is so fucked up on so many levels. I should have killed you. So it's just a couple days before this happened. She hits him. Okay. Her response was, you should have killed me? Question mark. You are so fucked up. I don't feel bad for attacking you. You deserve it. 100%. And we got a good laugh out of it the next morning. And that was their last correspondence. He tried to message her. She ignored it. Two days later, drunken and enraged is when he goes to her apartment. And Oh, that's so toxic. Her funeral was held on May the 8th with the UVA men's lacrosse as pallbearers. No. No, no, I would be like, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. But nobody, like her mom and sister didn't know how bad it was oh yeah no. you know what i mean they, yeah like they sure. didn't know all this they didn't the know time. it's not their fault yeah no Ugh. so most autopsies are public record yeah but it depends on the state i did not know that i didn't either so some states like virginia consider it a medical record so it violates mm. hipaa so a lot of People, including the media, didn't know what happened until the trial. Like, what was her cause yeah. of death? So, on February 6, 2011, the trial begins. Prosecutors said that she died from blunt force trauma to the head and wanted to charge him with first-degree murder. They said he planned to kill her, take the laptop, and destroy evidence from earlier fights. All the messages. Mm-hmm. Nope. Witnesses testified to past abuse and they used his confession. Defense argued that it was an accident, that he was just a drunk kid who got upset, and it should be involuntary manslaughter. They tried to get two medical experts to say the cause of death was from suffocating in her pillow after drinking and taking Adderall. 
and not blunt force trauma. One doctor said she died from cardiac arrhythmia caused by alcohol and Adderall mixed together. Would this cause an insufficient amount of blood flow to her head? And that all the injuries that she did sustain, none of them were lethal. And that essentially they were all caused from CPR being performed by her Hmm. roommate and or first responders. She had no skull fracture and a two to three inch hemorrhage on her scalp. That was it. And the bruising. Right. So, <laughs> beating your head against the wall and shaking your brain around, it's like shaking baby syndrome. Mm. There's not going to be a cracked no. skull in your brain hanging out. Your, your brain's being bounced off each side of your skull. That's what causes you to die, not... Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's not... Mm-mm. Her blood alcohol level was... which means she was legally drunk and she did have Adderall in her system, but she had a prescription for it. So, and she was taking it as prescribed. It wasn't, she wasn't abusing it. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't overindulging in it. So the medical examiner said that it was definitely blunt force trauma. Mm. Neck injuries um, were caused by violent twisting. Like someone had put their hands around her neck twisted their hands and choked her to death. Well, not to death, but choked her. His blood alcohol level was not tested, which infuriates me. Why? Because it was too late and it wouldn't have, it would have been too late to get it. It wouldn't have been. So by the, mm, yeah, by the time they got to him, it had several hours had went by and it wouldn't have, I mean, it had been out of a system. You would think that, I don't know. So in closing, prosecution said that he was controlling and he killed her in a violent rage and that it should be voluntary manslaughter because first degree you need intent. So the jury could have found him guilty of first degree murder, second degree murder, voluntary or involuntary manslaughter or not guilty. And they had to decide on larceny, too, if it was just larceny or, or grand larceny. So, basically, did he go there to steal the laptop and then he murdered her? Or did he just take it on a whim? It's just semantics at this yeah, point. I mean, 100%. he killed somebody. So, on February 22nd of 2011, nine hours after deliberating, the jury found George guilty of second-degree murder and grand larceny. So, he got 23 years for second-degree murder and one year for grand larceny to be served consecutively. He did have an appeal. He tried to appeal it. They said no. It was upheld. And they were like, no, you're not doing this. So, George Hughley V, of course, you know he has a number behind his name. He's the fifth. There's a fifth. Mm -mm. There's four others. Nope. He will be out of prison in his early 40s, which means he can start a whole life. Yeah. I mean, I'm 40. And I have a lot of life to live. You absolutely <laughs> Thank do. Thank you. You absolutely do. So, um, if you had done something as horrific as this and you just got out, no. Not, you've got all the life to live. You've got all the life to live. Exactly. Yikes. Which is ridiculous. 
So UVA did award her her diploma. She was two weeks shy of graduating. She had worked as an intern for a public relations firm in New York City the summer before, and she already had a job lined up. I mean, yeah, she had everything. And it was so important to her to graduate because that's where her dad went, Mm -hmm. and he didn't graduate, so she really wanted to. So they went ahead and awarded her to her diploma. They also started a Let's Get Grounded program, which is, you know, teaches kids, kids, college kids, how to recognize and react to problems like alcoholism, bullying, domestic violence, but not very many people have participated in it, which is sad. No, yeah, that needs to change. So, the men's lacrosse alumni that has over 300 former men players award a Yardley Reynolds Love Scholarship every year. They have raised over $500,000 to go to women's lacrosse players. Mom and sister started the One Love Foundation because her number was one. And her last name was Love. Um, where they work to end relationship violence through education and digital technology. And there is a free phone app that you can download. And so it's a free phone app that you can download and it teaches you and and gives you like tips on how to get out of things or different. um, They provide like research and other things you can look at. There is a website called joinonelove.org. That also has resources about how to stay in a healthy relationship and how to recognize unhealthy relationship patterns. So I didn't know that women in their early 20s were at a three times greater risk than any other demographic to be a part of a domestic violence situation. Oh, I didn't either. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because you're a young adult, you're dating. Well, and you probably don't think that, okay, he's just mad. He punches a wall. Oh. It's not a big deal. That's not okay. That's not normal. That's so, that's so no. Oh, my gosh. No. So, that's the story of Nordly Love. Yes. He was murdered by her so rich, entitled, pissed-off boyfriend. So, so terrible and sad. I really hope if any college girls are listening to this, recognize the signs, get away, put a little Lizzo on and throw his shit out the door. Yeah. Don't, uh-uh. No. It is, when you're younger, things you think are normal, and then you grow up and you're like, that was really messed up. It's, you just wish you could tell younger girls, but, you know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Well, because you don't... Oh, yeah. And being that young, you're not going to... Yeah, exactly. It's easier for me to say now, oh, you know, you're mm-hmm. 20 years old. You need to do X, Y, Z. But... Mm. I wouldn't have listened to you when I was 20. Exactly. I'd have been like, mind your own business. A lot of it is... Yeah. It sucks. So. Ugh. That's my story. That's so terrible. She was about to graduate. She was 22-ish. Mm-hmm. Ish. Mm-hmm. What would you tell your 22-year-old self about relationships? Girl, not anything you can put on here. What would I tell my 22-year-old self in college? Live your life. Don't, you don't have to be 
be single. Be, you don't have to be single if you're dead in love and just want to have all heart eyes and butterflies and post all the pics on Instagram, go for it. But there's nothing wrong with being single and getting, for sure, no. Living your life either. Nothing wrong. I mean, I was not single in college. <laughs> however, I wasn't either, but that's what I'm saying now looking back. Yeah, however, I mean, yeah, there's so, you're so young. You really are. When you're that young, there's so much time to find the one. Just, I feel like especially in the South, there's oh. more of an emphasis on you find someone, you get married, you, get you married have kids, young, you get, have yeah. kids young, yada, yada, yada. No, you get, if someone's not, if someone's a dick, don't stay Mm-mm. with them. I know Mm-mm. that's easier said than done, but let me be your blunt friend. Leave him. <laughs> oh, gosh. So switching gears, what's something positive? We did a... um paranormal we had a paranormal investigator that we, we interviewed and we're super excited about it and you guys have to listen to it he talks about all the creepy ghosty shit yes. and plays the evps he recorded and yeah so i talk about my armpits sweating a lot oh my nervous Lacey talks a million miles an hour she's so excited about this guy you definitely have to listen next week. Yeah, we did an interview with Chris Counts. He's a paranormal investigator. He's on a show on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. He's a part of a paranormal group here. All the things. Also, there's a murder house in Lacey's neighborhood oh, that he talks gosh. about. Don't yeah. say anything else. He, they'll have to listen. Yes. Also a haunted bar. So yes. we're going to cut this off. I can't and, wait to go to that bar. I haven't go, been since pre-COVID times. So let's go and go there we're and get a burger. Bar. Burgers, burgers, and Bloody Marys. And bathrooms. Yes, because that's, a, that's just, supposed to be a hot spot. You have to listen. Yes. We're not trying to cliffhanger here, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go. Bye. Bye.